ahead and turn to Luke chapter 3, and we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, uh, beginning in verse 15. If you're using a copy of the Church Bible, you'll find this on page 858, and we are going to look this morning at Luke 15, down through the end of the chapter, through the genealogy, the baptism of Jesus and his genealogy, well-known accounts. We're getting into the good stuff, as it were. It's all good stuff, but we're getting into some of the greatest uh, truths in Scripture about the Lord Jesus, and we're looking this morning at Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 38. And let me again just briefly pray for us before we come to the preaching of God's word. Father, again, we ask that you would please attend the ministry of your word, do great and mighty things. We pray that you would accomplish your purposes. We pray that you would do that in us, that you might make us see and hear your son. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you enlarge our hearts in the knowledge of you, that you would increase our faith, that you would fix our eyes steadfastly on you, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, Luke 3, beginning in verse 15, now Luke says, as the people were in expectation, remember John the Baptist has begun his uh, public ministry, everybody's coming to John, there's a lot of excitement, people are repenting of their sins, and uh, Luke now says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked John up in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized, that's a very important phrase, Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Adam, the son of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. When I was a boy, I was weaned, for better or worse, on Sesame Street, probably for worse. Um, But one of those things I remember as a boy was the cameos they would do where they taught children to differentiate uh, one thing from another. One of these things is not like another. Can you tell which one it is? Uh, we still hear that today. That became a very popular television uh, segment. And it's helpful because as we come to our passage this morning, we are essentially seeing all the people come to John the Baptist, all of the men and women and boys and girls who are coming, repenting of their sins, confessing their sins in Israel, turning back to God, acknowledging their depravity, acknowledging that they need the Lord to redeem them and have mercy on them. And then there's Jesus in the midst with the people. And he looks just like them outwardly. He looks just like them. And and Luke is going to tell us this morning that in one respect, he is exactly like all the people. But in another respect, 
he is nothing like the people. One of these things is not like the others. And that will open the door for us, uh, open the door for questions. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? What was happening at his baptism? Did he have to repent of sins? Why was he undergoing a baptism of repentance? Um, How does that impact you and me today? And a thousand other questions. And so as we come to look at this this morning, we're going to consider just uh, three things. First, we're going to consider how the baptism of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus uh, teach us about the identification of his person. And then secondly, about the inauguration of his ministry. And then thirdly, about the signification of his work, the identification of his person, the inauguration of his ministry, and the symbolic significance of his work. We'll notice as John is the center of attention still. John the Baptist had that lucrative ministry in the wilderness. He was the crazy guy coming out. He was the guy with the sandwich board sign that everybody makes fun of. And everybody was coming to him because God was doing something great. The people were in expectation. Uh, The people knew that this was not an ordinary time. They knew something special was happening. They knew that God was on the move. And they were coming to John, and notice that Luke says, when the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, John is, in the first place, going to give us an identity of the Son of God, the one to come. He's going to tell us something about him By contrasting him with himself, the people are wondering, is John the Christ? For thousands of years, a Messiah has been promised. A Redeemer is going to come. The seed of the woman would come. For thousands of years, the Jews are waiting and watching and hoping, some, a remnant at least, and they were looking, and now John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Christ, but we see how easily people are misled in placing inappropriate values on religious leaders and not putting appropriate value on the one who is the Christ. The people are asking, is this the Christ? Some are saying, I think John is the Christ. I think he's the Redeemer. I Look, everybody's going to him. The Pharisees and the scribes are afraid of him. The people are flocking to him. They're confessing their sins. I think this is the one. And John very naturally and rightly and appropriately points away from himself by the way, all of John the Baptist's ministry and all ministry of any minister who is worth his salt before God, who is not an absolute charlatan, is that they point away from themselves to Jesus. And John immediately says, look, I baptize you with water. But there's one who's about to start his ministry, one coming after me, and I'm not even worthy to stoop and loosen the strap of his sandal. Now, I didn't know this for many years, but in the rabbinical traditions, uh, every rabbi would have his students, and the students were expected to serve the teacher. They were expected, we have a phrase in our day, to carry his bags. They were supposed to say, I carry the bags of rabbi so-and-so, or rabbi so-and-so, and and I do this, and and they would serve them, and they would show their allegiance to that teacher by serving them, And, and yet the rabbis had a saying that There was one act of service that was beneath even the greatest of teacher, and that is that no one should have to stoop to loose the filthy strap of their sandals. I mean, imagine how demeaning that would be that, you know, a religious teacher puts his foot out and says, and I'll take my shoe off. And so even they knew that that was beneath the student, and yet John here 
is saying, look, I'm not even worthy. This is how infinitely great and majestic Jesus is. This is how glorious the Redeemer is. I'm not even worthy to go down and loosen the strap. I would count it a privilege, John saying, if I could even loosen the sandal strap. I mean, he is saying, I am nothing. He is everything. Remember, this is John who's going to later say, uh, he must increase, I must decrease. Right? John is going to, and he points to Jesus and he says, uh, he is so much greater, so much better than you could ever imagine. Now, remember late, later in Jesus's ministry when he asks, he asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? And, and Peter says, some say John the Baptist. They're still saying that in Jesus's ministry, by the way. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, John had been beheaded. He was already dead. And Jeremiah and the prophets were dead, but people were saying they thought Jesus was John the Baptist or Jeremiah or Isaiah. And I've often, it's, it's often struck me, you know, if, if, if you thought I was somebody, some great person come back from the dead, it would be really creepy. I'm not even sure how we would process that. But it would also be a great honor to be likened to Jeremiah or Isaiah or one of the prophets of the Old Testament. But for Jesus, that is infinitely beneath who he is. This is the infinite God. This is the ever-blessed God over all who gives to all men life and breath and all things in the flesh. And John says, I'm not even worthy to loose the strap of his sandals. Now, that is the first way in which Luke shows us the identity of Jesus. Very interesting. I had never thought about this prior to this uh, sermon, but... Isn't it interesting that the one to whom John is not worthy to stoop and loosen the strap of his sandal stoops and loosens the straps of the sandals of his disciples and he washes their feet. The one who is over all, greater than all, does the very thing John says he's not worthy to do to him. The exalted Christ is the humbled Christ. The, the Christ who is exalted over all becomes servant of all. And in that sense... Unless John had told us how great he was, we wouldn't know. Now notice that um, as John goes on with his witness, he tells us more about the greatness of Jesus' person by contrasting his baptism with Jesus' baptism. Notice this, he says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I only baptize with water. So John is saying, water baptism is not the thing, but behind water baptism, there must be one who can make that work in the hearts of people. There must be one who is enabled to make the waters of baptism efficacious in the souls of people. And John is saying, look, I, all I can do is put water on you. That's John saying, all I can do is externally administer water. But there's one coming after me greater than me, and he is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He, he is the one who possesses the Spirit. He is the one who is going to send the Holy Spirit down on his people. Remember at Pentecost, when the Spirit has come and Jesus has sent the Spirit and he has baptized his people. He has regenerated his people. And remember, the Spirit comes down like a pillar of fire. John is alluding to that. He's alluding to um, the fact that Jesus is going to give the Holy Spirit to wash the souls of his people, that he is going to purify the hearts of his people like, like gold is refined in fire. Um, you see something great in that contrast, how great a one this, 
coming Christ is. And, you know, you also see how great Jesus is by John disappearing out of the picture. This is very interesting. At some point, Jesus is going to come to be baptized. And at some point, he is going to, um, he is going to subject himself to the most abasing thing as if he were himself a sinner. And that's going to happen right around this time frame, right around when John is saying, uh, there's one greater than me, and, and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And probably around that time, Jesus is in the crowd with the people, and he comes, and he subjects himself to it. But notice what Luke does. Before telling us about Jesus' baptism, notice this. He says, Herod locked John up in prison, verse 20. So, what, what Luke is doing is he, is he is chronologically putting things out of order so that we would get a point. And what he's saying is, listen, Jesus is so great that John has to fade out of the picture, that John going to prison for being righteous and godly and upright and Herod hating him for rebuking him, for taking his uh, brother's wife and having the adulterous relationships that he had and all that, that, all that entailed, that, that John is being taken out of the way so that Christ is exalted. So that from this point on in this book, every eye is going to be fixed on Jesus. John is willing to be taken out of the way. He's willing to suffer for Christ because of the greatness of this one who came into the world. Now, there is another witness here. Remember, uh, you'll remember that when John the Baptist is introduced, he is called a voice crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Well, it's very interesting, right, just a little bit further down when Jesus is baptized, now there's a voice from heaven. Isn't that fascinating? John was a voice in the wilderness, now there's a voice from heaven. And as Jesus is baptized, God the Father comes, and he bears witness to the person of his son. He says audibly, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the eternal son. This is the one who came out of my eternal bosom, the eternal son of God, who is God over all, one one with his father, one with the Holy Spirit. And now the father comes and audibly says, this is my son. This is the one in whom I am well pleased. Um, God, the father only speaks three times audibly in the New Testament, which if you have friends who think God speaks audibly all the time, you could always just point that out. He speaks audibly three times, and each time it's about his son. This is my beloved son at the transfiguration. This is my son. And then in John 12, he says to the son, I have already perfected what I'm doing in you. Um, Now, the father tells us who Jesus is. John the Baptist tells us who Jesus is. And now Luke tells us through the genealogy. Now, Luke's genealogy is different than what you find in Matthew. You have, I believe, in Matthew's genealogy, Joseph's lineage through the kingly line to David, and he was Jesus' adopted father. And then in Luke's genealogy, I believe, we have Mary's lineage, and she also comes through David. Matthew goes through and stops at Abraham. And Matthew is highlighting that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the true Israel, the one who came to fulfill all the covenant promises, uh, the greater Isaac, the one who is going to recapitulate Israel's history and who's going to fulfill all the covenant promises so that we who trust in him also are blessed with God's people. 
was a lot. Luke is going to tell us that Jesus is the second Adam who came into the world to undo all that Adam did, to do all that Adam failed to do. And so notice it goes all the way from Joseph and Mary in verse 23. Notice that important clause, as was supposed the son of Joseph. Mary is his mother. God is his father. Joseph is his adopted father. And then all the way down to Adam. And then notice verse 38, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, by the way. If you don't like reading the genealogies in the scripture, you are missing out. Um, They are richly theological in nature. And here Luke says all the way down from Mary and Joseph, essentially, Mary's father-in-law, Heli, all the way down to Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God. He predates Adam. He is not only the son of Adam, he is the son of God. Yes, you have to believe in a historical Adam. I will argue with you about that. I don't care if fundamentalists have given that a bad name. If you don't believe in a historical Adam, you are denying a historical Christ. This is his genealogy, just like you have a genealogy, and I do. And so notice Luke is telling us so much about the person of the son. He's telling us that he is the one who is greater than all the prophets, one that is greater than John the Baptist. He is the eternal son in whom the father is ever pleased. And he is the second Adam who came to do all that Adam failed to do. Now, as Jesus comes to be baptized, we secondly see that this is the inauguration of his public ministry. Notice verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry. Now, This may seem insignificant too, but it's actually quite significant. Remember, to this point, all we've seen is a Jesus who was keeping the law of God as a righteous Israelite. He was always the son of God. He never became the son of God. He always was, is. But up until this point, 29 plus years now, he has done no miracles. He has not taught publicly. He has subjected himself to Mary and Joseph. He has always done his father's business. He was in the temple at 12, asking the scribes questions, astonishing them. And yet now, at 30 years of age, Jesus is about to begin his ministry. And and if you ask the question, what's the point of that? Why did he have to wait till he was 30? Why couldn't he have started at 20? I mean, I thought I could run the world at 20. And when people said, oh, you're a baby, I, I was angry. And now I'm 40, and I'm like, oh, I was a baby. And then I'm going to be angry when people tell me I'm young now. And why, why did he have to wait till 30? Well, because in the law, God had ordained that prophets, priests, and kings were anointed for their public ministries at 30 years of age. That was the general age. David became a king at 30. The prophets started their ministries at 30. And the priest, under the Aaronic priesthood, began their ministry at 30. Now, how do we tie that together So what's going on in the public ministry of Jesus and the baptism? Well, the baptism is, in many respects, um, a, a transfer of the priesthood. Remember in the Old Testament, the priest who mediated between God and the people, the people that made you acceptable to God, the people that stood between the wrath of God and you, were the Levitical priests, the descendants of Aaron. God had set aside the Levites for that special function. And, and if you ask the question, well, why... Why doesn't that just continue forever? Because in the Old Testament, if I was a Levite, then my son would be a priest, and his son would be a priest, and his son would be a priest. And, and we see that John the Baptist is a Levite. 
And he's a priest. And he's the son of Zacharias, of the order of Abijah. He is a Levitical priest. And yet he's not in the temple sacrificing and offering up incense. He's not doing what his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather and everybody back to Aaron were doing. He's out in the wilderness baptizing people in the Jordan River. And I think that John is actually fulfilling a priestly ministry. Because remember in the Old Testament, the priests were to wash the utensils. They were to baptize all of the utensils that were used for consecration. John is consecrating people to God. They knew what baptism was. It wasn't something new. It wasn't something uh, novel. They, weren't, they didn't ever come to John. Think about this, because if you read the Old Testament, where's baptism? Where is it? You would think the people would say, what are you doing? They would reject him. This is some new weird ritual, but this isn't a weird ritual. This goes back to the temple. And the utensils being baptized, the writer of Hebrews uses that word about the utensils in the temple and the priest baptizing them and consecrating them. Here John is consecrating the people to God. And here comes Jesus who in and of himself needs no consecration, but will still undergo a substitutionary consecration. And I think that the the priesthood is transferring from Levi to Judah at the baptism of Jesus. That God is anointing Jesus. The priests in the temple were anointed with the oil that represented the Holy Spirit. He is going to be anointed with the Spirit at his baptism. This is his public ministry. This is God initiating Jesus into the world as the prophet, priest, and king of his people. This is God saying, this is the long-awaited Christ. This is the one to whom David and Solomon and Isaiah and Jeremiah and everyone else pointed. This is the one who in himself has all sufficiency. And I also think it's important because it's all done publicly. There's nothing covert. Isn't that interesting? Jesus never did anything covert. From the beginning of his ministry till his crucifixion, it was all public. It was all out in the open. There was no... Smoke-filled rooms. Jesus was never, I'm not saying he's against smoking cigars. I'm not. Um, But he was never in a smoke-filled room doing business. It was all public. Jesus actually says that to Herod. He says, before Pilate and Herod, I've always done everything open. Never had covert conversations to take over the kingdom. Um, Very important. Simon Peter, when they go to replace Judas in the book of Acts, will actually point to that fact, and he'll say, you know, we have to choose from among ourselves one who was with the Lord Jesus from the baptism of John until he was taken up to heaven. It was all public. I think that's one of the beauties of Christians is we can live our lives as open books. Uh, If our Savior lived his life as an open book, we can. We can be transparent and open. We don't we don't cover and hide and conceal. Um, doesn't mean we go out and just foolishly tell everybody how screwed up we are because we are really messed up. Um, but, but we are open. We are transparent. Um, we don't live in the darkness. And Jesus was open, and he was being inaugurated for public ministry openly. Now, the bulk of this passage, obviously, that we want to focus on now at the close of this sermon is the significance of Jesus' work, because we haven't answered the question, why did he need to be baptized? We've said, okay, it's an inauguration for his ministry, but 
could not have happened in the temple with some holy anointing oil? I mean, we could ask that question. Why does Jesus have to go in the symbolically filthy waters, right? Everybody coming to John the Baptist is filthy. Their hearts are filthy. That's why they're coming, right? Just like the, the infants are not innocent, we are not clean by nature. And so all these people are coming to John. They are, uh, they are filthy, and Jesus is right there among them. Now, we have two options. Um, one, we could foolishly and unbiblically conclude that Jesus is a sinner, which the Bible says uh, unequivocally that he was not, that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Jesus himself bore witness to his sinlessness and said, uh, the one who speaks uh, from him who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus said, if I've done wrong, bear witness of the evil. The writer of Hebrews says um, that we need a great high priest who's like us in all ways, yet without sin, and that we have that in Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So he's not a sinner. Never, ever disobeyed his parents. Never lusted after a woman. Never had an unjust dealing, a greedy thought, a murderous and angry thought. Um, always loved his father perfectly. Always loved his neighbor perfectly. And yet he's at the filthy waters, and he's going to go into the filthy waters. And he's going to go into the filthy waters so that he can go up the hill and hang on the cross. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has this great picture where he says when Jesus steps into the waters and and baptism was probably done where you went waist deep and then the one baptizing would pour it over you kind of a hybrid between Baptist and Presbyterians and uh, everybody argues about it I'm like it's probably neither Um, and and as he went into that water Ferguson said John would be symbolically taking up the filthy water that symbolized that all the filth of all those that went in there symbolically had been washed away, symbolically, and that he was taking that filthy water and pouring it over the head of Jesus. Wow. Pouring my filth over the head of Jesus. Um, It's a picture. Jeffrey Thomas, this is one of the greatest meditations I've ever read, and I mean that. He said, there is a great line of repentant sinners standing soberly and sorrowing on the bank of the Jordan, waiting to go down to the waters to John to be baptized. There's a thief, a drunkard, an adulterer, a liar, a bully, a wife beater, an auto worshiper, a torturer, Jesus, a murderer, a forger, a troublemaker, a proud man, a terrorist, a blasphemer, an abuser of children, a spendthrift, and hundreds more, everyone a sinner. And there is Jesus, made in the likeness of sinful flesh, standing in line between the torturer and the murderer, indistinguishable outwardly, no halo over his head, but inwardly he is holy without sin. As the prophet said, the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. He stands with sinners in solidarity. He stands for sinners in substitution. 
He will hang on a tree as the Lamb of God and bear the sins of the world. At the last, he will do more than stand with them in their sin. 